All right. Good morning. Thank you, Diana. You're going to put her in the back, Suzanne? She's, she keeps saying amen, amen, right? <laughs> I like the echoes in the sermon like that, so. Uh. <laughs> All right, well, good. Um, Easter is almost upon us, and so I, just, I do want to encourage everyone to think about inviting someone to Easter service. Um, it is one of those two or three times a year where people are, are a lot more open to coming and worshiping and a lot of people are just waiting for invitations in the past when, when I've invited people, um, they're like, yeah, I would love to go, and, and uh, I just didn't know where I could go or, or wanted to go. People just like to come where they know someone at least, so I got to aim in on that one, right? So <laughs> she's, she's put the money on the table for all of us, right? So got to talk louder than that. But um, hey, this morning, if you will turn um, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, Last week, we, we began looking kind of in this series, an unofficial series, I guess, that I've seen giving up certain things. Um, you know, the Lenten season is about giving up certain things. And most of the time when we talk about Lent, um, we're giving up food in some capacity. I remember the church I grew up in, um, denominational, traditional, Episcopal church, we gave up, um, well, what did we give up? I don't remember what we gave up. I just remember having a big pancake breakfast. And supposedly, you're supposed to give up wheat and and those type of products for the rest of, of Lent. I never did, though. Um, it never quite registered with me, but, but you know, a lot of times Lent is about giving up certain types of food, certain things to prepare your heart for Resurrection Sunday, um, really Good Friday, the whole Passion Week in essence. And so last week what we talked about is giving up, um, not just those things, but giving up of ourselves. And um, I appreciate Stephen trying to apply that in, in some ways, saying it's just a game last night. It's just a game. You know, win or lose, it's just a game. You know, that Jesus is the sinner, right? And it is just a game. It's just a bill. It's just a, a car. It's just those things. And so... Um, that's a challenge we all face is, is, is Jesus going to be the center and, and really giving up certain things? We talked about control, giving up those things that we want to control. And, and a lot of times we are control freaks with God, that we want to control certain things. But then maybe when the going gets tough, we, we want to kind of give the control back to God momentarily until we get the balance right or we, until we get back on our feet and then we want to take it back. But we looked last week in Genesis at how the enemy a lot of times uses very subtle ways to begin to cause us to take control back from God. That we, in, in the Garden of Eden chapter 2, God said, you have everything before you in the garden. He withheld nothing in his creation um, to the creation of, of man and woman, of Adam and Eve. But then the enemy came in, the serpent came in and began to say, did God really give you everything? Is he holding back? Don't you think you can be equal with the creator? And these little subtleties began to create this temptation, or it, there was a temptation, but it created in Adam and Eve the, um, I guess, the choice then to take the fruit and eat it. And this morning, I want to talk about those subtleties again, but what I'm talking about is giving up our enemies. Now, our enemies this morning, I want to kind of put a different twist on it. It's not necessarily who comes to your mind, I say, who's your enemy? It's really what I want us to look at are those that are closest to us. Sometimes our enemies may be our spouse. Sometimes our enemy may be our parents or our sibling or even a church member or a teacher or someone else. 
There's these things sometimes that, that are there within our hearts that we tolerate with other people, but we're holding on to things. And it creates sometimes this attitude within us. And I think there's a chance, there's an opportunity, there's always a chance and opportunity. But I really think what the Lord wants to speak is for us to lay down some of these things in, in the vein of what Jesus Christ did and the way he loved all people to, to really forgive those that are around us. It's hard sometimes to forgive those that we're most familiar with, that we're most comfortable with, um, because we know a lot that's going on within their lives. There's, there's also sometimes a little more freedom, maybe a higher expectation in those things. But in Luke chapter 19, um, verse 37, as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem or beginning to come into Jerusalem, kind of the, the triumphal entry. You know, he started in Galilee. He's kind of come down through Galilee um, towards Jerusalem. Verse 37, it tells us, Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. The king who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. As they approached and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you knew this day that would bring peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. And they will crush you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave one stone on another in you because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So what we find is Jesus is in the Mount of Olives or on the Mount of Olives. And, and geographically, it's sat east of the city. It still sits east of the city. hasn't moved. But as Jesus came down the mountain, he would come into a valley. The Kidron Valley, I believe, is, is the name. And, and at this point, he's about half a mile away from Jerusalem. And he's looking into the city of Jerusalem. And he's seeing the city. And he also probably see the temple. And his heart begins to kind of break for the city, even though his disciples here and, and others in the crowd are shouting, the king who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the other gospels give, give a more exciting, um, triumphal entry than this. Luke's a little more subdued here. And I think there's a reason why. It's because death looms in the air. Death looms kind of in two ways. Jesus knows his own death is coming. He knows in a few days he's going to step into the city, or, or even that day he's going to step into the city, but there's going to be a time when he goes into the city, he's going to go back out to the Mount of Oz, he's going to be arrested and pulled back in the city, and he's going to be tortured, he's going to be beaten, he's going to be mocked, he's going to be spit upon, he's going to be sentenced to death, and he's going to go out the city to Golgotha and be nailed to the cross. He knows that. But there's a greater, maybe not a greater death. There's another death here that's also looming. It's what he begins to talk about, this, this destruction that's coming to Jerusalem. It's not going to come today or tomorrow. It's about 35, 40 years on down the road. But, he's, but his heart is breaking simply because those who have heard the message, those who have heard the offer of peace, of salvation, have rejected it. They've spurned it. And his heart begins to break for those people. Death looms. And he's looking over the city and he's thinking all of Jerusalem, all of Israel, not all in the sense that every person in Jerusalem, every person in Israel has rejected him, but many people have begun to reject him. 
The offer of salvation. The offer to come into relationship. The offer to not be rejected in the ways of the world. An offer for a spiritual king. Not necessarily a political, but a spiritual king who would lead and guide them. And people said, no, 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 I don't want that. No, 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 that's not for me. You're not the Messiah. You're not this. You're not that. And in fact, we'll get to it in a few minutes. These are the people who will shout, crucify him. There's a burden that Jesus carries here for the city of Jerusalem. And it's not really the city, it's what it represents. It's the people that it represents. Verse uh, 39, it says, Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he says, I, Hey, look, I can, but the stones will cry out if I do that. You see, there's going to be opposition to the salvation message. There's going to be opposition to Christ. There's going to be opposition to us. When we're a believer, and, 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 the, and Michael referred to this last week out of Ephesians, there's a seal that's placed upon us by the Holy Spirit. We are sealed. And in Roman times, when you put crates on the boat or something and you were sending it across the sea, there was a wax that was melted upon the crate and a seal that was put there. A seal redemption, basically, that when it came to the other side, the person would take that ring or the symbol of that and come and redeem those crates. In the same way, Christ has redeemed us. And we are sealed, but when we're sealed, there's also then maybe a bounty that's put on us by the enemy that says, I'm going to battle against you. Paul talks about the civil war in Romans 7. The, the civil war takes place between our flesh and the spirit. It's going to happen. And there's going to be opposition. There's a spiritual opposition, and then there's a physical opposition. A lot of times the physical opposition is a manifestation of the spiritual. It's the behavior. It's the, it's the, it's the things that come from the spiritual realm which usually is sin. That's, that's really the, the culprit of it all. But physically looking here at Jesus, there's some different levels of enemies that he's facing. We could argue that he's facing the Roman. The Roman Empire is a type of enemy because of just the conditions that, that the Israel's living over uh, under and, and such like that. There's the Pharisees. There's the crowd. And then there's even each other within his own ranks of the disciples. In each one of these groups, they knew how to fight. And they knew how to fight physically. The Romans, you, you, if you were going to rise up against the Romans, they were going to come in and crush you. The Pharisees weren't so direct that way, but they would manipulate people to, to have certain rebellions or revolts. Or if they didn't like one person, they might, they might manipulate someone else in some way to go kill that person. The crowds, of course, there's... there's there's these revolts taking place, you know, in a few days when Jesus is arrested, Barabbas and Jesus will be put before the crowd. And they'll say, which one do you want me to release? Barabbas led a rebellion. So there's this that's going on. People knew how to fight. Even his own disciples, they knew how to fight. They, they wanted to fight. And so a lot of times it's in our nature that when someone wrongs us, we want to fight. Sometimes physically we want to fight. But, but we'll look at that in a second. But, we'll, but remember, we're talking about the subtleties sometimes. What we find, even among his own disciples, in, in um, Luke chapter 9, Jesus says, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and he's, and, and, and he's on this journey from Samaritan down in, into Jerusalem, and he says, hey, go to some of these villages in, some, in, in, in Samaria, and, and find us a place to stay. And in chapter 9, verse 53, it says, But they did not welcome him because he determined to, to journey to Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? But he turned to rebuke them, and they went to another village. 
That's a heart that's beginning to show. See, James and John, they misunderstood their position and authority with Jesus. And they thought the vengeance is ours. We can call down heaven and we can call down fire. And we do that with, with our enemies, our perceived enemies a lot of times. Not just those Roman-type enemies or their Pharise- the Pharisee group or even the crowd, but those that we're closest to. Woe to me, not woe to me, but woe to the person who crossed me, you know, my family or, or a co-worker or whatever. Later on, and actually, you know, they had forgotten what Jesus had spoken earlier in the chapter 9 when he said, look, if you go into a Samaritan village or into a village and people don't welcome you, shake the dust off your feet and move on. They had quickly forgotten that. Even Peter, when Jesus is arrested, takes his sword and he chops the ear off of the high priest's servant. Jesus says, put it away. Put it away. That's not the way we're going to fight. That's not the way it's done. And what we begin to see is this heart that Jesus has for, for, for people, for mankind, particularly for those in Jerusalem. Verse 41, it says, As he approached and saw the city, he wept over it. These are the people who have rejected him. These are the people who have spoken against him. These are the people who want to take his life. And in a few days, they're going to cry out, crucify him. And he's weeping. He's weeping. He's not saying, James, James, John, now call down the fire from heaven. Peter, now let's go. You know, in fact, in the garden, I believe that Peter and the disciples could have taken them. I mean, these are rough and tough fishermen, tax collectors. These guys were Galileans who were well-seasoned. And these Pharisees and their administrators come out with the soft hands. They haven't, they haven't lifted a tool to work or a sword to do anything. They could take them if they wanted to. Jesus said, no, that's not the way we do it. Man, if I know someone's going to take my life in a few days, I'm going to be fighting. Physically, I'm going to be, I'm going to be, I'm going to fight like a girl, right? Isn't that that the old, (laughs) that's what I tell my girls, be strong and courageous. I'm going to fight like you. I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight. I'm not going to say, let me pray. I'm not going to say, let me, let me love on this person. I'm certainly not going to weep over them. But it says, Jesus, he wept over saying, if they knew this day would bring peace. But now it's hidden. You see, we begin to see that Jesus' heart breaks for his enemies in different ways. But see, he's not looking at the person necessarily. He's looking at something deeper. He's not looking at the physical fight. He's looking at a spiritual fight. He's saying it's much deeper than the manifestation of someone's behavior. Now, it's not to excuse anyone's behavior, but there's something that lies beyond the manifestation of everyone's behavior, and it's sin. And Jesus sees that. The ones that are going to be in the crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him, are not the enemy. It's sin that's the enemy. He knows that we're dead in sin. He knows there's nothing we can do as sin rules and reigns in people's hearts. Thus, the only solution is for him to lay his life down. What do we find in Romans chapter 5? Starting in verse 6, it says, While they're still helpless... That's what he's looking out over Jerusalem. So what he's looking out over all of mankind, saying these people aren't necessarily the enemy. It's sin. But while we are still helpless, at the appointed time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might dare die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, 
we will be saved through him from wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled will we be saved by his life? Verse 10 again. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled will we be saved by his life? And not only that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have now received this reconciliation through him. Wow. What words Paul writes. Why we were enemies of God, he laid his life down. Because he didn't see you and I, he didn't see Jerusalem, he didn't see Israel, he didn't see any other person as necessarily being the enemy. He saw sin as the enemy. He didn't say, well, this person said crucify, and this person has hit me, this person has spit upon me, this person has rejected my message. They are the enemy. Say, no, it's something much deeper. It's a spiritual battle that's there. And he offers forgiveness to us. While we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to him. You know, I think we know the scriptures well enough in this room when we say, or we read something where, where the Lord says, pray for your enemies, bless, don't curse, what those things mean. Paul writes to the Romans, um, he says, look, if anyone, or vengeance is mine, don't repay evil with evil, but your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, and in doing so, you're going to heap firing coals upon their head. I, I used to love that verse so much. It's like, I'm going to give them a drink and, and let their, their head just burn up or whatever. He says, don't be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. I was thinking about this a few weeks ago and just thinking about, you know, the tension that lies sometimes in some of the closest relationships that, that are. Sometimes the parent or sibling relationship, there's, there's an underlying tension that's there and there's a toleration that goes on. I'm going to tolerate this person just because I, I have to, but in our hearts, there's something that's, that's burning, a bitterness that can lead to, to, to contempt, that can lead to hatred, that can lead to a lack of action sometimes, a lack of sympathy or compassion or whatever. Happens in a marriage as well. We just tolerate certain things. And it gets to a point sometimes where it blows up. And you, you might have one of those blow-up arguments or something. But at the end of the day, maybe you're still holding on to certain things. There's that that's there. Or with a coworker, or a roommate, or a friend, or even a church member as well. Or there's others. See, sometimes we think of enemies being that person that, that's standing on the street corner, uttering things that, that violate our own belief system, but not thinking that they may be living with us. That we may be doing something to create this. And there's an unwillingness for us to lay our heart bare before the Lord and say, Lord, do something in my own heart because I'm harboring something. And thus it affects our relationship, it affects our marriages, it affects our relationship with, with parents and siblings, it affects the way that we work, it affects the way that we avoid people at times at work or in the neighborhood or, or at church or, or wherever it may be because we're holding on to something. And that's really my challenge to you this morning. It's a very simple message is, is forgiveness. This is a message of forgiveness, true forgiveness. Not when someone's hit you on the cheek or, or someone's said something really mean, but it's those things that, that just the underlying currents that are there, the, the tension that's there within our heart because we fulfill a lot of times that a certain need's not being met or certain things not happening. 
But it's much deeper than that. There's sin in our own heart. There's sin in the other person's heart. And Jesus wept over Jerusalem, over a people he knew was rejecting them. What about those that we call friends and and wives and husbands and brothers and sisters and moms and dads? I think part of our preparation for Easter because we do worship in community. We do commune with family, spiritual family and natural family is really checking our own hearts. He's saying, is there something I'm holding against a child or against a parent or, or against my spouse or a friend or a coworker or a church member or, or, or someone else that I just need to begin to confess between me and the Lord? That I just need to, to lay before and, and Lord, give me the heart that you have for that person but also giving room for the Lord to work in our own hearts. You never wondered how many times we may be the enemy of someone else? We always think the other person is the enemy, right? But the manifestation of the sin in our hearts leads to certain behaviors and actions or lack of actions. We don't want to say, hey, hey, I'm the enemy. I'm a good person. I'm not a bad. I'm not the enemy. But sometimes we just need to come and say, Lord, it's me. It's probably always us as much as it is the other person. And Lord, just begin to work in my heart. Lord, have your way with me. That's my simple challenge this morning. As Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem, people who were rejecting him, how much more to those that are closest to us should we also offer forgiveness and and have a heart of compassion? We don't think about it like this a lot of times. It's status quo with that person. Maybe there's some conversations you need to have this week after you pray to come and just make some amends to say, look, I just want to apologize for something I've been holding in my heart. Some of those conversations the other person may not understand and it, and it may cause a little more tension. Maybe it's at the time to do it. Maybe, maybe you just need to pray a little bit more. You'll know if you go before the Lord and ask the Holy Spirit. But let's just not look at enemies as someone at the Roman level, or the Pharisee level, or in the crowd but those within, the, within those closest regions of us. So, Lord, this morning I pray that as, as we prepare our hearts for Resurrection Sunday, as we prepare our hearts for Passion Week, Lord, we pray for our enemies. We pray for ourselves as we have been enemies to so many people. Lord, our actions, our words, our lack of words, the manifestation of, of sin in our own hearts, in our own ways have, have probably caused confusion, have caused hurt and pain. And Lord, we ask for forgiveness. But Lord, just as you gave us the parable of the unmerciful servant, forgiven of a great and huge debt, but yet didn't forgive the debt of a fellow servant, Lord, I pray that we will not be like that. Lord, that we will offer forgiveness. Lord, every one of us were flawed. But Lord, every one of us are being transformed and conformed more into your image each day. Lord, let us show grace. Let us show mercy. Lord, if there's those things that are there where we need to come and just have a conversation, Lord, show us. Lord, empower us to do that with your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray you go before us and and allow us to, to have those conversations this season with grace and with mercy. And Lord, we want to give up these things that we're holding on to, these grudges that we hold on to, and cling to you and to you only, Lord. And so, Lord, we pray that our lives, that our hearts as we lay them bare, will bring you honor and glory. Honor and glory, Lord.
Lord, give us the compassion that Jesus had for all of our brothers and sisters, which means our roommates, our churchmates, our spouses, our parents, our kids, Lord. Let us have that same compassion as Jesus wept over the city, over the people who in a few days would arrest him and beat him and say, crucify him, Lord. Let us take on that same posture. And we thank you and we praise you this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.